Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be together this morning. And if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us too. Uh, it was good to be together with Lynn and Dennis uh, the last couple of days down at the BCBC conference and AGM. And it was great for me. I got to meet uh, more people within our Baptist conference since I'm fairly new. And it was just encouraging to hear all the work that's being done in our conference. And it was good to meet up and to be inspired by one of Calvary's own former lead pastor, Chris Price, was there giving the keynote address. And he did a wonderful job. And it was just so encouraging. So there's lots of good stuff happening in and through our conference and lots of things that we can be um, praising God for. If you've been with us the last while, you know we've been doing a sermon series through the book of Daniel. And this morning we come to Daniel chapter 6, the famous story of Daniel and the lion's den. And this is a beloved story by, you know, most children love to know this story. And, you know, we're told to grow up to be a Daniel. I remember when I was at Bible college walking into the, the big Christian bookstore in Abbotsford. And in order to get to the music section, you had to walk through the kids' toy section. And I walked by this one rack and it was full of Bible uh, superhero action figures. And of course, Daniel was right there at the top. And Daniel, I tell you, he was buff, right? He was, he was on the juice. He had to be, right? He was so, so strong. And the thing was, he came with a little lion too. And I had to laugh at it because Daniel was so big, his feet were bigger than the lion, right? And I'm just like, well, no wonder Daniel wasn't scared. He could just step on that thing, right? But more than just a story that is to inspire children to, to remain faithful to God. Um, this story has, I think, a more edgy, deeper truth to teach us this morning. It's, it's, it was written to adults as well who were living in captivity, living in a, in a, in a society that was hostile to their faith. And what does it mean to live faithful to God when we're in circumstances like that and to trust that God is still sovereign over all things. Well, in April 1963, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., along with other civil rights leaders, were arrested on the charges of parading, demonstrating, boycotting, trespassing, and picketing in the city of Birmingham. These leaders led a nonviolent campaign of coordinated marches and sit-ins targeting racism and racial segregation in that Alabama city. They did this even though it was against the law. Just two days before their arrest, a judge issued a blanket injunction against these kinds of activities, and with the full knowledge of this, Reverend King and his colleagues proceeded to subvert the law and continued their campaign. Now, hopefully, we would all say that we, you know, racism and racial segregation are wrong and are rightly to be opposed, but some may question the validity of breaking the law, like these guys did. We might say, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, or doesn't the Bible say that we are to obey our earthly governments? Well, many Christians at that time said the very same thing back in 63. They held those same opinions. Though they said they were against racism and segregation, they also preached patience, you know, negotiation, and above all, obeying the laws set out by the authorities of the land. 
and eight clergymen, they wrote an open letter to the community stating this and advocating for calm and denouncing the actions of Dr. King and his partners in protest as acts of lawlessness. But in his response to his critics, Dr. King replied with an open letter of his own, which he wrote from his prison cell in Birmingham. He writes why he felt justified in advocating for the breaking of some laws while obeying others. He wrote, the answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. Now, what's the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or whether one is unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. He says, I can urge people to disobey segregation ordinances because they are morally wrong. You see, even though others may label Dr. King a rule breaker, he believed that he answered to a higher authority, the ultimate judge of right and wrong, the one whom I believe pronounced a verdict of not guilty over Dr. King and his fellow activists, despite other Christians' accusations of rebelliousness. Now, we are apprentices of Jesus, and so we also answer to this higher authority. Our allegiance is ultimately to God and to his ways. So despite how society thinks that we should act, or even the laws laid out by the judges and the governments of our society, we are called first to be faithful to God, even if it makes us look like offenders of the laws of the land, or even to our fellow Christians like it did Dr. King. And in today's scripture, it appears that Daniel is also a lawbreaker. But upon closer inspection, I believe that we see that it's God's sovereignty which empowers his subversive faithfulness. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. It says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to send hi set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps, they went as a group to the king and they said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, we've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So... King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened to Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. 
Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the degree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king Darius, and they said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the, the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he couldn't sleep. Poor guy. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually be has he been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted up from the den, he was found, no, or no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the people of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Well, once again in this uh, story of Daniel, there is a change in leadership. If you've been following along, it's like there has been changes all along the way. And after Belshazzar, who was the regent we saw last week who was in charge, he was killed at the end of the last chapter. Now Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom. And most likely Darius, he is a regent himself. So he's like acting king, but he's ruling on behalf of Cyrus, who is the king of the Persian Empire, who will come on the scene in a little bit. And so Darius, he goes about setting up the government by appointing these 120 satraps who are kind of acting like provincial governors, right? They act as these local officials throughout the kingdom. And over these satraps, he has three administrators, one of whom is Daniel. Now we should pause for a moment and just look back and reflect and consider how incredible Daniel's time in Babylon has been. 
Since being exiled from Jerusalem as a teenager, not only has he survived, but he has continued to succeed in these positions of authority without being affected by the change in rulers. You know, in our day, when an organization changes its leadership, it often results in the dismissal of all the former regime's hires. And yet here, Daniel continues to outlast all of these rulers. It's incredible. At the time of this account, Daniel is not a buff bodybuilding teenager. He's about 70 to 80 years old, and yet despite living in a quickly changing pagan society that had little to no regard for his God or his faith, Daniel continues to find success. And there's a couple things that I think we can notice about this. First, it shows that Daniel must have been excellent at being flexible and navigating the culture. So he was flexible with his circumstances and he was able to navigate the current culture. And I, I hope the same could be said for us. And I think the second thing it shows is that God's sovereign hand is still guiding everything in this story. In verse 3, it says that Daniel so distinguished himself by his exceptional qualities that the king had planned to set him up over the entire kingdom. So he's going to get a promotion. But this promotion, it aroused fear and jealousy in these other officials. You see, they didn't want Daniel overseeing them. And I believe it was specifically because of these exceptional qualities that he had that made these others fear Daniel's promotion. You see, in verse 4, it says that the leaders looked at Daniel's life, his conduct at work, and they could find no corruption in him, that he was totally trustworthy. He wasn't negligent or irresponsible. Now, for the king... It's got to be fantastic to have an employee like that, right? That you can totally trust and sit over your affairs and not worry about them. But it's not so great to have a supervisor who has those types of qualities if you're a corrupt employee and if you aren't trustworthy and responsible yourself. And most likely, these satraps and other administrators... They were using their own positions for their own personal gain and not solely for the good and the glory of the Persian Empire. Perhaps they were like handing out favors in order to gain some political advancement, or maybe they were just skimming some money off the top when no one was looking. And you see, people do these kinds of things often, especially when they believe that they are owed, that they are deserved, you know, that they deserve more than what they're getting from their employer. Perhaps they feel like they haven't received a pay raise when they should have got one, or maybe they were overlooked for a promotion that they obviously deserved and earned. So why bother working hard for a boss who doesn't respect or acknowledge you? But Daniel's behavior is different, right? He's trustworthy. He is full of integrity, and it's not because he's confident that Darius is going to reward him. It's because Daniel has faith in the sovereignty of God. You see, Daniel has already seen how God has provided for him, and he believes that even if he isn't rewarded by people for his hard work and integrity, that God who sees everything will fully reward him one day. Daniel's faith displayed in his honest work ethic subverts the culture, right? It's different than his peers, and it unsettles them. And it's his trust in God's sovereignty that empowers this subversive faithfulness. 
And this is the first challenge that I see in this text for us, that when it comes to our work or the responsibilities we have, are we trustworthy or are we tempted to slack off or take what we feel like we're owed? Daniel is an example of someone who views their work as worship. And all of our work is worship. It doesn't matter where we're employed or what responsibilities in the home we have. This is all worship to God, right? He is the one who sees us. He is the one who will look after us. And ultimately, God is the one who will reward us for how our work honors him. Now, after agreeing that there is no possibility for framing Daniel when it comes to his work, these leaders then conspire of a way of getting and attacking him through his faith in God. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? The fact that they go about uh, going after him through his faith. And I think that also conveys a couple of things about what his faith must have been like. First of all, he must have been pretty open about his faith in Yahweh to people, including these other leaders. You, maybe you've heard the familiar adage. It's accredited to St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, I love the sentiment of that, this idea that we can go about and through our deeds and our action, our work, we can be these representations of God. And it's true. Like, we are the aroma of Christ wherever we go. But it suggests that we don't need to use words. What would people think about Daniel's work ethic if he never talked about his faith in Yahweh? Maybe they would just think he's just trying to get into Darius's good books or earn a promotion. You see, I think they knew about Daniel's faith because he talked about it. And in the same ways, our lives should testify to the goodness of Jesus, both through our actions, but also through our words. Now, the second thing that their scheme to attack Daniel's religion indicates about his faith is that it must have been a priority in his life, right? That his faith, it couldn't have been just a little side interest or a little hobby of his. How else would a plot to frame him using something to do with his faith succeed if this wasn't one of Daniel's greatest concerns in his life? Think about it. If he had weak commitment to God, their whole plan just would have fallen through. Daniel just would have simply stopped praying for 30 days and not have had to face any of the consequences. And I wonder for Christians in Canada how we would react if there was a moratorium on prayer for 30 days. It's interesting to think about. Well, after these leaders, they come up with their plan. They approach the king and notice how they appeal to his ego in verse 7. They say, issue a law that anyone who prays to any god or any human being during the next 30 days except for you, they shall be thrown into the lion's den. So by saying this, they are putting King Darius on par with a god, at least for 30 days, right? And you might think that Darius seems pretty dim to fall for such a thing. But what our English text doesn't really convey is that these leaders were persistent. This wasn't a one-time thing. They came to him consistently, repeatedly, saying the same thing. Like, oh man, people should be praying to you, right? Like, you're so great. You're like a god. You deserve this, right? And it's easy for us to imagine how if people constantly came up to us, constantly, you know, inflating our egos and affirming us, how a message like this could get to someone's head. Plus, they say in verse 7, 
Look, all of us agree about this, your majesty. All of us, all the administrators, all the satraps, all the officials, we all think it's a good idea, which isn't true, is it? Right? They're liars. There's one person who isn't in on this with them, who does not agree with this, and it's the one that the king had planned to set over all the rest, Daniel. But these satraps, they do what people do all the time. They conspire in secret, they lie, and they justify their actions by appealing to a crowd. How many times have I heard someone say something along the lines of, you know, a bunch of us were talking, and, and then they state their complaint or the thing that they want changed, right? Well, you, know, a, you know, I was talking to a few people, and by appealing to this anonymous crowd, they try and give weight to their words, but without any accountability, right? And this is not good behavior. And this is something that we should not allow to pervade the church community as it is tempted to do, right? Unfortunately, Darius, he falls for this, hook, line, and sinker. He puts the law into effect, thus making it illegal for Daniel to pray to God and practice his faith. And the readers of the text are left asking, what is he going to do? But Daniel, he doesn't even stop to ask that question, right? His obedience is unflinching. In verse 10, it says that he learned of the decree, he went home, he got down on his knees, and he broke the law. He prayed, right? And by praying in this circumstance, Daniel practices civil disobedience, right? He is, by definition, subversive, rebellious, provocative, and disobedient. Daniel is a revolutionary. Not quite the children's story we remember. Daniel concludes, like Dr. King, that this law, this man-made code, does not square with the higher law of God. Therefore, it's unjust, and he's got no problem breaking unjust laws in order to be faithful to God. By praying, Daniel shows he is willing also to pay the price for faithfulness, right? He is willing to face the lions, and he's able to do this because he believes in an all-powerful God, and that it's God's sovereignty which empowers his subversive faithfulness. And I think we're given a clear picture of this, that it's his faith in God's sovereignty that empowers his actions when we compare Daniel with King Darius. Daniel, who trusts God, and he breaks this unjust law. Darius, who does not trust God and continues to uphold this unjust law and even hide behind it. You might say, well, well, what about in verses 13 and 14 where it says that, you know, he finds out about his newly enacted law and how it's been used to entrap Daniel. And it says he stresses out, right? And that he, he, he knows it's no good. He's determined to rescue Daniel. And it says that he did everything, made every effort until sundown to save him. Really? Every effort? I actually disagree. See, I don't think he made every effort. You see, where Daniel was willing to stand up to this unjust law, even at the cost of losing his life, King Darius is not. Darius's convictions only run so deep. Perhaps he's willing to negotiate a deal or maybe try to hold things up, appeal through the courts, but any personal sacrifice is not in the cards for him. Lose his position? 
I don't think so. Stand alongside Daniel in protest and face the lions too? Don't be ridiculous. Certainly the Apostle Paul was right when he wrote in Romans 5, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. So Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. The cover is put on top and he's left for dead. But this isn't just simply an execution. This punishment was a type of ancient courtroom. It's known as a trial by ordeal. So the basic principle of a trial by ordeal, and they're still used in some places, is that um, an individual is subjected to a test when they are suspected of a crime. And if they are defeated by the ordeal, so in this case, if you're eaten by the lions, well, then you are guilty. But if you survive the ordeal and you emerge victorious, well, then you must be innocent. I think maybe we can see some flaws in some of the reasoning of using such things within Canada today. But the idea is ultimately that God knows the truth in ways that human beings cannot and that the gods will see the verdict through. But this is why when Daniel emerges from the lion's den and he says that the lions did not hurt him, he says it was because he was found innocent in God's eyes. Daniel not only proclaims that he is innocent, but he also proclaims God's sovereignty. He says that God sent an angel who shut the mouths of the lions and rescued him, showing that God is in control even when it doesn't look like he is. Now, after seeing all that's happened, Darius then has Daniel's enemies along with their families thrown into the den And in verse 24, it says, Before they even reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Now remember, this is a a trial by ordeal. So they did not survive the trial, and the swiftness of their demise indicates to those who are reading the text that in the eyes of God, they are guilty. Finally, Darius makes this grand speech in verses 26 and 27, extolling the virtues of Daniel's God, particularly the virtues of his sovereignty and his supremacy, saying, he is the living God who endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues. He saves. And he does. Our God rescues and saves. And these are all true about him. But you know what makes Daniel a hero of our faith? It's not the fact that he's super strong, right? He didn't defeat the lions on his own. It's not even the fact that he just believed all these things to be true about God, that God is sovereign, that God saves. It's the fact that he allows these truths to mold and shape his life and to influence his actions and empower his faithfulness to God even when that faith will get him in trouble even when his faith will look subversive to this world around him. And whether it was his integrity in the workplace that ends up getting him in trouble or disobeying this unjust law not to pray, it wasn't just acting subversively or radical that made Daniel faithful. That's not the point. It's obeying God that was subversive to the world around him. Hardly anybody in Canada today, I I think, would say that praying to Christ is subversive or rebellious. But in another time or in in other countries, allegiance to 
to Jesus is absolutely rebellious and considered treasonous. And in some homes today, perhaps it's subversive faith when a person continues to come to church week after week despite the objections of a spouse or their parents. Or maybe subversive faith today looks like a high school student bowing their head at lunchtime, the only head bowed in an entire high school cafeteria to give thanks to God. Or maybe subversive faith is a contractor who is not willing to do any business under the table. But make no mistake about it. Faithfulness like this will have its consequences. Often it would just be a lot easier for us just to look the other way or not to rock the boat. In our future in Canada, faithfulness to God, it might look subversive as Christian doctors and nurses refuse to participate in physician-assisted death. Or maybe subversiveness looks like pastors who are you know, willing to lose their license or their church's tax exemptions because they won't perform weddings for same-sex couples. But again, it's not about going out of our way to act subversive that makes us faithful. Rather, it's our obedience, our trust in God and in his word that will often be seen as subversive to this world that we live in. We need to understand that faithfulness to God in this ever-changing, non-Christian society, whether it's Babylon or Canada, will come with trials. And for us to be loyal, we need to count the costs, be willing to face the lions, and pay the price. And to do that, friends, we've got to believe in a God who is sovereign over all things. To believe that he is the living God, that he endures forever, that his kingdom will not be destroyed, and that his dominion will never end. We need to believe that he does and he will rescue, that he saves, even if it means like Daniel or like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego a few weeks ago, that we will have to face the trials. Remember, sometimes God saves us in the trial, not from it. And this is what following Christ demands from us. A willingness to suffer, even to die, because we love God and we believe that suffering for being faithful to him is a far superior thing than living a trouble-free life, but one that is disloyal to him. This is why Jesus warns all of the would-be followers and the would-be disciples that they need to count the cost for discipleship to know what you're committing yourself into and be willing to pay the price before declaring your allegiance to him. He says in Luke 14, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. He sets a high bar. Now sometimes, our obedience to God, it is going to look subversive to the society we live in. But, what about when our faithfulness, what about when it appears subversive to others within the church community? So I want you to put up a picture of, oh, there it is. That's Chuck. Chuck was arrested a couple of years ago when he was up in the northern BC community of Wet'suwet'en in connection with the ongoing conflict between those who are backing ghost, uh, coastal gasoline pipeline and several First Nation communities who were opposing it. Chuck was there in the position of a legal observer. 
So he was invited by the indigenous people and arrested by the RCMP for violating an injunction, that one that was preventing um, the coastal gaslink employees from accessing their work. Now, whether we agree with Chuck's actions or not, or whether, whatever your opinion is about climate change or about First Nations land reparations or anything like that, that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm saving that for another time. The reason that I bring Chuck up today is that I've met him, I've hung out with him, and I've heard how he loves Christ and how he was in Wet'suwet'en as a part of an organization known as Christian Peacemaker Teams who are committed to being agents of peace using nonviolent means in an attempt to reduce conflict. And so he was in Wet'suwet'en believing that he was living out faithfulness to God and like Daniel, Chuck knew the consequences. He was willing to be arrested, right, to be faithful to our sovereign God. And I believe that that took courage. And we may not agree with his actions, but here's the question I have for us today. Whether it's Chuck or somebody else who behaves in such a way that we don't agree with, do we then become the trial by ordeal that pronounces a verdict of guilty on them? Do we become the lions who are ready to pounce and devour? When this happens to our fellow Christians, when it leads them to do something that they want to honor God in. We don't always agree with one another when it comes to following Jesus faithfully and what that looks like, and that's okay. We won't always agree with each other, but we are commanded to love one another. And it's hard enough to be faithful when facing the consequences from an unbelieving world, let alone facing abuse from fellow believers in the kingdom of God. How discouraging do you think it must have been for Martin Luther King while he's sitting in prison when eight white clergymen wagged their fingers at him in public disapproval? Like, shame on them. And shame on us for when we do this kind of thing ourselves. You know, if we allow our disagreements with siblings in the family of God to go from just a difference of opinion to devouring them. James 4 says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, whenever we have these opportunities, and there will be many opportunities to disagree with one another, there also presents itself another opportunity, another opportunity to love like Christ does. Jesus himself, he had faith that was absolutely subversive, right? More than just upsetting the pagan world around him, Jesus' faith infuriated the religious establishment, didn't it? They, along with Rome, were the ones who were responsible for his crucifixion. Look what the religious people said of Jesus when they handed him over to be executed in Luke chapter 23. It says, the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation, right? He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a, the Messiah, a king. And Jesus knew 
that his faithfulness to the Father would get him killed because it was subversive to the world around him, including his fellow Jews. He knew that. Yet he trusted in God's sovereignty over all things and that God could use even this for his good purposes. And I thank God that he did. I thank God, uh, I thank Jesus that he never allowed the fear of what the world around him would think or say so that you and I could be shown the way and the truth and the life. I thank him for having the courage to face the disapproval of religious people, the ire of the crowd, or even the disappointment of friends who ended up turning their backs on him for being faithful to his father in heaven, and that he was willing to face torture and execution, trusting that God would use it for good. And he did use it for good, didn't he? He used it for the best. The Father used Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection to not only unsettle and upset the world, but also to bring hope and restoration and his plans to make all things new. And that's what the Father wants to do through our faithfulness to him. That we might trust that he is sovereign and to allow that to empower us to take risky uncomfortable steps of faith that may look subversive to those outside the church, maybe even some inside the church. You see, faith in a God who is sovereign can and should empower us to be people whose faith will not be silent in the face of injustice. King continued to write in his letter from prison. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful, It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced and they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. Rather, it was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and they had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. And they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now, he writes. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church. The power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. He says, I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. You know, I worked with high school and college students for over 18 years, and quite honestly, I didn't meet many of them who were disappointed or disgusted with the church. You see, unfortunately, most of them had already dismissed the church as too irrelevant to even care. But things don't have to be that way, do they, friends? Right? We can be this colony of heaven 
We may be small in number, but as Dr. King says, we can be big in commitment because we serve a God who is sovereign over all, a God who rescues and saves. And I want so badly to be, as he describes, too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. Don't you? I want to be God-intoxicated. Do you? I hope so. You see, and it's not too late for any of us. Daniel was like 80 years old when he faced the lions, and he was God-intoxicated. But this is going to take commitment and courage and faith. But God promises us that he will supply us with those things if we will just trust him and walk in obedience. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. You know, as soon as he learns of this decree, Daniel goes home and immediately he gets down on his knees and he prays. He doesn't flinch, right? He acts in obedience. And I think for many of us, that's also what we need to do, right? We need to respond, to devote ourselves to being big in commitment, to becoming God-intoxicated. Oh, Lord, help us. And to allow the immense truth of God's sovereignty to empower us towards radical faithfulness.